grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father in the name of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, which Paul tells the Philippians is the name that is above every name. Amen. You walk through the doors, push the button on the elevator, and those doors open up. You step inside. You push the button in there for the top floor. And you go up, up, up above every other office, every other department in the building, all the way to the top floor, and the doors open up, and you head to your corner office. It's where you work. You're the CEO. What do you do there? Right, as, you're, as you're sitting there in your corner office at the top of the building, well, you take meetings, you get on calls, you hear reports. Ultimately, you lead the entire organization. You, you set the tone for the whole team, whether that's 20 employees or 20,000, by your actions. You're the boss. Now, I know that that, that image right, that I just painted for you might be a little bit dated at this point, right? For, for decades even, you see corporations have been trying to move away from such a, a hierarchy, and the pandemic just sent that into warp speed. I'm sure that there are a lot more CEOs at this point whose daily elevator ride has been more replaced by a daily walk into their home office with slippers on to start some Zoom calls. Regardless, the job is still the same. Lead the organization. But what exactly does that, that look like? I've never worked at that level of a company in the C-suite. I don't know exactly what it would look like to sit down and be the CEO of a 20-person company or a 20,000-person company. What does it look like that Jesus leads the whole universe? Or what does it look like that he's ascended up into the heavens where he's now seated at the Father's right hand, ruling over all things? What does that mean? What is Jesus' day-to-day work as the head over all things? Paul talks to us about this. And in this section from Ephesians that we're looking at this morning, he uses this interesting picture. He says that one of his regular prayers is that God enlighten the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts. They can see some wonderful truths related to this fact that Jesus sits enthroned over all things. And of course, as we hear that, we realize hearts don't have eyeballs. Right? The physiology that we as Christians have is not different from other people that suddenly we sprout a couple of eyeballs inside there. If somebody cuts open a Christian to do heart surgery, they won't see some eyes blinking at them. Paul's talking about different kind of eyes as he talks about the eyes of our hearts. He's talking about a different kind of sight. And as Paul talks about this, he says it's only with these opened, enlightened heart eyeballs is the picture he uses, that we can see what the ascended Jesus is doing. And as Paul talks about that prayer for the Ephesians, that their heart eyes be opened and be enlightened, he tells them what three things, these are those blanks that I mentioned are in your your folder there, what three things he wants them to see with these enlightened heart eyes. He wants them to see the hope to which God calls his people. He wants them to see the inheritance which God will share With his children, he wants them to see the power which God exercises for the good of his church. We're going to look at each of those. So first, Paul says that he wants Christians, Ephesians, us as well, to see the hope 
to which God has called us. What is hope? Right? We use that word pretty loosely in English. Right? Maybe I'm running late and the traffic's bad, and I say to myself, oh, I sure hope I get there on time. And I know, very likely, I'm not going to, and yet I'm still going to use this word hope. It's not what hope means biblically, scripturally. So biblical hope, when we hear that word used, it's always going to be referring to an attitude of certain optimistic expectation. Biblical hope uh, is not sort of a a hoping against all odds. Biblical hope is a, a rooted expectation about the future, a sureness, a certainty. So biblical hope is not something that denies what we would call reality. Right? It's not biblical hope to say that I just know that everything in my life is going to work out for the particular good that I'm hoping for. Right? Biblical hope allows for us to recognize the fact that maybe the cancer won't get better. Biblical fat hope allows us to, to bring into our worldview the, the thought that you know, maybe this broken relationship isn't going to fix itself and I can't force of will my way through either of those things. Biblical hope is instead to look past those things. To look from the circumstances of this life, from the things that we cannot control, to look at the promises that God makes to us. What sure and certain things are held out for us? Such things as God's promise to ever be with us through word and sacrament. Christian holds on to that in hope. God's promise that wherever his word is proclaimed, wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is with them, strengthen to comfort, to console, to encourage them. That's something into which a Christian puts hope. The promise that the angels shared with the disciples, that Jesus will return one day on the clouds, that's something into which Christians put their hope. These things, these particular promises of God, that's where our hope gets rooted. Paul says that God calls Christians to hope. He calls us to meditate on these things, to to hold them in our hands, to think about them. These particular promises of God. And that idea, these promised things that God holds out to his children, well, that leads us into the second thing that Paul talks about. Inheritance. What is an inheritance, right? It's something that a parent will pass on to a child. It's something that is, is promised to that child for no other reason than they are a child. Right? That, that's what an inheritance is. Paul says this is, a, again, one of the things that with our enlightened part eyes, God wants us to see the inheritance which he's going to give his children. And Paul uses a couple of words here right? as he talks about this inheritance. He calls it the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Right? As we hear those words, Paul's highlighting it. He's blowing it up for us. He wants us to think about What would it be like if you were the child of a billionaire and they passed away? Of course, it's not a billionaire's estate that we're talking about as we talk about inheritance here. We're talking about something far beyond that. The God of the universe promising to hand down something to his children. right? Not not just Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, but the the, the God who created those men who created all their wealth, who created the conditions that allowed them to amass such wealth, that God is promising to give something to you, to his children. Well, what is this inheritance? As we think about that, 
we think about the particular, the, the various blessings that God gives to people. All the things that God gives simply because he is creator and he loves this world that he has created. We heard from last week, Acts chapter 17, Paul sort of talked about that as he talked with the Athenians. Right? Paul talked about the fact that God sends rain and sun. He, he causes the seasons to pass so that people have food, so that people have drinks, so that people can live life. Paul said that God gives everyone life and breath and everything else. All those things that Paul talks about with the Athenians, right? food, work, governments to maintain stability, all these are blessings given by the God who created the universe solely because he loves this thing that he's created. But when we hear inheritance, we're going to focus even tighter. Those are things that God gives everyone, whether they know God or not. He showers out these blessings on all people. That's what Paul's, that's sort of Paul's point in that letter or in that message to the Athenians last week. God gives you all these things just because he loves you, and then he invites the Athenians to cross that bridge he's building to, to know this God. But when Paul talks about an inheritance, we're focused, we're zoomed in on our status as God's children. Paul's talking here about the blessings that God promises not to all people, but to you in particular. It's his baptized children, people whose names, who, whose names have been overwritten by his. And in your baptism, your, your rebirth certificate has God's name written after your own. You belong to him. And God promises to you, because you are his, particular blessings. And we talked about these promises that he holds out to us in his word and sacraments, those gospel promises that promise to always be with us, to always be here for our comfort and our encouragement. That is something that we, as, as believers, really only benefit from. That the word of God is available, is freely given out to the whole world, but only by faith is it, is it grabbed onto. Only by faith does God's law gospel message go to work on our hearts show us our sin and to show us our Savior. So the Bible, God's word, is at the same time one particular blessing that God gives to his children. It's also the way that he makes people his children. Right? The baptism, our baptismal rebirth is God bringing his water, or bringing his word and uniting it to water, using that to bring us to new life, to rebirth. But there's something else that comes with that rebirth, that new life. Paul's thinking of here. Paul regularly prays that, in verse 17 we read, God give the Holy Spirit, whom he here calls the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation to the Ephesians. And that's something that happens through God's word. Right, so Paul's not praying that something new would happen per se. In fact, just a few verses before our reading begins, Ephesians 1.13, he says that when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And so the Holy Spirit is part of your inheritance as God's children. He's given us sort of an advance payment on the blessings that God intends to give to you. And the Holy Spirit is the one who goes to work on your heart, who opens your heart's eyes through God's word to see your hope, to see the inheritance, right? The, to see that Jesus will come back to bring you into his kingdom. That's the inheritance that Paul wants us to see and then the last thing that the Holy Spirit opens our heart's eyes to, Paul says, is God's power. 
That's the last of these three things Paul wants believers to see with our heart's eyes, and he spends that whole last paragraph of our text talking about it. It's the one he talks the most about, power. Well, we should talk about what God's power is then. Good way to start. Contrast it with human power. What is human power? The greatest power that a, a human sort of intrinsically has. Right? What's the greatest power that any one of us sitting in this room actually has? It's the, pow- it's the ability to end a life. We've come up with a, 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 a host of ways to kill. Right? In fact, the, that ability, the ability to end life, is something that God gives to earthly governments as their ultimate authority. Right? Political theorists will sometimes talk about government and call it the one agent here on earth or the one human organization that's legitimately allowed to end lives. That's one way of defining if you want to ask what's a government, right? What makes a government different? What makes the U.S. government different from Coca-Cola? Political theorists would say, well, Coke can't kill me. But the U.S. government in certain instances has the right to do so. Romans 13 sort of uses that same definition. So it's it's not just a, a, a political theory thing, but this is sort of how God speaks about earthly governments. Romans 13.4 says that earthly rulers are God's sword-bearing agents. They wield this ultimate power, which is the ultimate power that humans can sort of wield in this life. The ability to end life. God allows governments and their agents to wield that power. He also reserves the right to use that power, and he will use it in everyone's life according to his own times. But God has another power. One that he doesn't share with any agent in this world. God has not only power over death, God has power over life. He creates life. He can even resurrect. There are ten total events in the Bible where dead people are brought back to life. And Paul, as he talks about God's power, roots that idea in one particular resurrection. says that this particular resurrection event is the most effective testimony of God's power that has ever been given in history. It's Easter. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says that that is God's mighty strength at work, that God the Father raised Jesus and then raised Jesus to sit at his right hand in heaven, where Jesus now rules in power. Revelation chapter 5 depicts the saints who are already in heaven, sort of praising Jesus as he comes onto his throne in heaven there, and they sing out loud, The lamb who was slain is worthy to receive power. He proved that he was worthy by submitting himself to his father's will. He lived. He suffered. He died. He was the best of all people, of any person who's ever put two feet on this earth. It was Jesus who was the best of us all. And he was rejected, abandoned by his friends. When he died, he was placed in a borrowed tomb. Shame. Treated as worthless. Then God raised him back to life. Gave him the name that is above every name. Gave him the seat that is above all other seats. The authority above all other authorities. We love those kind of stories. Right, don't we? Where the, the person who was worthy but downtrodden and ignored and rejected finally ends up on top. We love those kind of stories. I thought about uh, a movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. Maybe a few of you have seen this. It's a Will Smith movie from a, a decade or two ago. Uh, Will Smith plays a man named Chris Gardner, who 
despite the fact that he's homeless for a time, that he doesn't have a college degree, that he's trying to take care of his child with all that going on, manages to secure a, uh, an internship at a, a stock brokerage and manages through his hard work, his grit, his determination to turn that unpaid internship into a full position at this company and eventually is able to, to start his own stock brokerage. But that's, that's the kind of story that we're hearing here. Right? Somebody who's, who, who rises from the bottom, from the bottom, that's where Christ lived here on earth, at the very bottom of things, born in a manger in backwater Galilee, 12 fishermen, his followers, now sitting enthroned in heaven. It's the kind of story that got Will Smith an Oscar nomination for this, this film. But it's real. It happened. We love these kind of stories because we love to see, right, ultimately the virtuous person, the admirable, decent, respectable, principled person. We love to see them on top. We want those kind of people in power. And so often, that's not what we see in this life, is it? So often in this life, we don't see people in power whom we think deserve that power, right? who use that power as we'd want them to. We look at the governing authorities over us, and no matter who they are, right, what position they might hold, what party they might belong to, we find some way to take fault with them. We look at our employers. We look at our parents. We look at our church leaders, and we find fault with all of them. So this is what Paul wants us to see with our heart eyes. All of those sinful humans who are in authority over us are under the control of Jesus Christ. Let's remember where Paul is as he writes the letter to the Ephesians. He's sitting in a jail cell. He has been imprisoned by the Roman government for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. How unfair, how ridiculous, what, what nonsense, what, what, what idolatry. Paul says, Jesus is in control. Jesus rules over all things. Right? Jesus is over every authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked. All of it is under the feet of Jesus, the ascended Savior, the one man who truly deserves to be in charge of everything. Caesar did not deserve to be in charge. Paul's jailers did not deserve to be in charge. Jesus was in charge. So Paul knew that he could write this and rest secure in that jail cell. How can Paul believe this? How can he come to such a conclusion? Or how can we today believe this? How can we look at the world and believe that all of that is under the influence of Jesus? How can we look at governments that persecute Christians? How can we look at cultures that promote behavior contrary to God's will and think that Jesus is in control? This is where that picture that Paul used at the beginning comes into play. Because it's not something, all of that is not something that we're going to be able to see with these two eyes. We will not see the ruling Jesus over this world with these two eyes. Not until he comes back, as the angels promised that he would. Not until he comes back enthroned, flying in on the clouds to end all, to bring us to be home with him forever. Then we'll see him ruling over this world and exercising that authority. But right now, we don't see it with these eyes. We see it with these eyes, with these heart eyes. Maybe you've already made this connection, but now I'm going to make it explicit. When Paul talks about us having enlightened heart eyes, he's just using a really picturesque way of saying 
to have these enlightened heart eyes, to see these things, to realize that this is true, that Christ rules over all things, that's having faith. It's a beautiful way that Paul expresses what faith is, to see not with these eyes, but with these eyes. Something what the, like what the writer to the Hebrews says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Not with these eyes, but with the eyes of the heart enlightened. And with these enlightened heart eyes, we see something else that only makes sense because of all of this. This us gathering together on a Sunday morning, on a beautiful Sunday morning. Why would we do this? Why would we gather together? Why, why would people, why, not just our church, but going to any church, why would people gather together talk about this stuff, to talk about forgiveness, life, salvation. If I want to be motivated, I'll go watch a TED Talk on YouTube later. Sun's wasting. I can do, it, I can do that when it's dark. Why am I here on a Sunday morning? Why am I here being reminded of my sin, being comforted by forgiveness, being encouraged to go back out into my life with that same forgiveness? Why does this exist? Paul calls the church, in this section of Ephesians, the body of Christ, the fullness of him that fills everything. It's a body. Well, it's, it's you. Where, where are you when your body is somewhere? You're there. Right? Where, where your body is, there you are. And so even as Christ sits enthroned in heaven, where his body is, there he is, ruling. The church is the one visible sign of Christ's rule over people that we can see with these eyes. People gathering together to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to forgive and to be forgiven, to, to admit their faults, to seek forgiveness, to reconcile. Where the strong serve the weak. Right? Where, where Jesus gets down and washes people's feet and tells us that that's the example that we follow in the church. How could this place exist if it weren't for the power of Jesus? Because the Christian church is fundamentally about us giving up the illusion that we have some kind of power, that we have some kind of strength, that we have some kind of control. Instead, serving, loving. Only if the risen and ascended Lord Jesus is indeed ruling over all things does this make sense. A place where people get together, give up power, and love one another. Where we, we surrender our, our priorities, our preferences, our, our thoughts, our tastes, our desires, and instead turn to the other and say, what can I do for you? What do you need? All this only makes sense if this is our Christ who holds all power, who, who is enthroned over every name, every authority, every dominion and lordship in the world. He's ruling with that power. And we can do this. We can rest secure. Because we have hope in our promised inheritance guaranteed by the power of our Savior God.
Happy Ascension Day, friends. Amen.